Chapter 18 of A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science by George Griffith. Chapter 18. The opening reception and conversazione at the Institute of Psychic Science, the local habitation of which was on a pleasantly wooded estate sloping southward from Denmark Hill towards Dulwich, was a unique and also a curiously fresh sensation, not only for that section of the great world of London which worked so hard to amuse itself, but also for many other excellent people who either were or earnestly pretended to be devoted students, as they thought, of some or all of the subjects included in the very extensive curriculum of the Institute. The Anstones and all Lady Georgina's Pontifex's particular set, including the Princess Natiev and Mr. Hadley Simmons, received cards of invitation, and a second batch reached the yet more extensive acquaintances of the Honorable Mrs. Royal Grover, whose husband, a distinguished colonel of engineers, who had won his V.C. and nearly a dozen medals and decorations, as well as a distinguished staff appointment, described the whole scheme as probably only a piece of pretentious rot, intended to fool women who had too much brains, and men who were too little, but who, nevertheless, dutifully accompanied the charming little woman whom he really delighted to call his C in C. Science, in the persons of many Dr. Ramel's friends and former colleagues, attended, mostly in an attitude of tolerant and large-minded skepticism, and even theology was represented by several of its more advanced exponents, more skeptical and possibly less tolerant, but still quite ready to be amused, if not instructed. The fact that the Institute asked neither for patronage nor for subscriptions went a long way towards allaying certain suspicions which they might otherwise have had, for even people of the most rigid views or the most exalted morals are inclined to look indulgently upon anything that promises to be interesting and causes nothing. The remainder of the European and American portions of the guests was made up chiefly of those earnest but heterodox seekers after truth and notoriety who still believed in or had grown dissatisfied with the tenets of theosophy, Christian science, and kindred forms of spiritual diversion. But after all, it must be confessed that the chief element of the great success which ended the function was the fascinating mingling of the life and color of the eastern and western worlds. The black and gray frock-coated, silk-headed men and the daintily costumed women of the west found themselves in company with the grave-faced, deep-eyed, strangely clad visitors from the distant and mystic Orient. There were Parsis from Bombay and Persia, Brahmin pundits who might have just stepped out 
of the scented glooms of Indian temples, mullahs and ulamas from the great Muslim colleges of Turkey, Persia, and Egypt, bonzes from Japan, and shaven lamas from the highlands of Tibet, all gathered together from the uttermost ends of the earth at the bidding of the pundit Dr. Issa Ramel, now so trusty and dispenser of the million which had been so strangely fused from the estate of the self-murdered victim of Jenna Hawkin. It must be admitted that not a few of the English and American guests had been to some extent attracted to the function by the expectation that the distinguished president of the institute would, in his address, make some allusion to the very exceptional circumstances under which its magnificent endowment had been secured. They were not disappointed. As Colonel Rover Rover said afterwards at one of his wives at homes, when the subject was being discussed, the director completely established his claim to genius by the absolute frankness with which he described the extraordinary series of circumstances which had brought this vast sum of money under his control. With a marvellous skill and tact, he represented his late friend and colleague, who had died in a hopeless attempt to escape from the just doom that had befallen him, as one of those enthusiasts whom too much genius had driven mad, and who had even come to consider crime as a verge if committed in the service of that science, which he believed to be the only means for the earthly salvation of humanity. For this mistaken belief, he had paid the penalty of his life. The last and greatest penalty man could pay. So far this concluding portion of his presidential address might have been received in various ways, according to the varied feelings or convictions of the hearers. But all doubts as to the financial honesty and soundness of the Institute were set at rest during the next few minutes, when he stated that ample means of support had been already promised from East and West and North and South, and rather than any suspicion of complicity should rest upon himself and his colleagues in the enterprise, he had decided to return the million intact to the heir of Sir Godfrey Anstone, who had the day before refused to receive it. Whether by chance or design, on the one side or the other, it happened that after the guests had left the lecture hall to take their pleasure and exchange ideas in a shady southward sloping ground, Mr. Hadley Simmons and the Princess Karen Atiyev found themselves strolling together just out of earshot of Lady Georgina's Pontifex and some of her party, who were taking coffee under the shade of the wild-spreading cedars, served with deft alacrity by the dusky, dark-eyed, white-turbaned servants of the Institute. The Gold King knew perfectly well, just as well, in fact, as the princess did, that she intended capture him and his millions if she could. And the frankly avowed project appealed very strongly to the sporting instincts 
of the man who had done a very big gamble with destiny and won at least so far as the current account was concerned moreover his strangely comprehensive and complicated nature made it quite possible for him to put aside for the time being the intense passion which he had so suddenly conceived for grace and storm as well as the almost unnatural revenge that it made possible and to frankly admire both in the physical and mental senses this beautiful and brilliant woman in the depths of whose gray eyes the enchanting witchery of youth still shone and to play with her as he had played with other bright-winged moths who had been attracted to their ruin by the fatal flame of that golden aladdin's lamb of his to him as he believed it was a game such a game he had often played before under similar circumstances to her as he knew quite well it was a business and a somewhat desperate one too and that made it all the more interesting to him and what do you think of the learned director mr simmons she said of the rapid and superficial review of his institute and its aims he must be either a most unselfish genius or a very clever man in another sense to have offered to return that million you are master of many millions yourself so your opinion ought to be valuable my dear princess he replied looking more steadily than she quite liked into the brightness of the eyes that were turned up towards his that is if you will allow me to call it so somewhat of a leading question and if i had the honor of the learned pundit's acquaintance i should possibly be rude enough to decline to answer it as i have not that honor i think i can say quite dispassionately that no man would have been such an idiot as to offer to give back a solid million to which he has an undoubted right unless he were either also an enthusiast for whom money has no meaning or a fool she queried interrupting him quickly and i hardly think dr ramel is that you are quite right replied at least so far as i can see some very clever men are fools but geniuses never are and i think from what i know of his career and his very remarkable achievements that ramel is a genius then perhaps you also have some belief or shall i say a desire to believe in those strange almost superhuman powers which as he said today have been attained to by those who have devoted themselves soul and body to the study of the great secret the great secret he said stopping in the middle of his stride and looking down at the half laughing half serious face that had been quickly turned towards him what is that or rather i should perhaps say what do you mean by it ah she said with such a smile and such a flash of her eyes as almost made him wish that he could grant her her heart's desire and make her such a helpmeet as she might be to such a man as himself ah yes that is just such a reservation as one might expect you to make the great secret 
Of course, you don't expect me to say such silly things as that for men it is ambition and power and for women love. No, no, that would be too absurd for us. We have lived, if not too long, at least too much for platitudes of that sort. But, she went on, lowering her voice almost to a whisper, don't you really know what Isel Ramel means for the great secret? It would appear, princess, that you are in a position to tell me. He laughed softly in reply, and therefore I may as well confess at once that I could not have my present ignorance more delightfully dispelled, granted always that you are willing to do so. She put her hands behind her, gave a little upward swoosh to her trailing skirts, and as she turned down a dusty little side path overshadowed by wild spreading beeches, she sat with a half backward glance as though inviting him to follow her. Yes, I know it, because I have been a pupil, as I might almost say, of the learned doctors. You see, I am half Pole and half Russian. My mother had to choose between marrying my father or going to Siberia. And so, as most Russians are Tatars under the skin, I have a mingling of East and West in me. And therefore, perhaps, Isa Ramel found me somewhat of an ape pupil. Of that, it would be impossible to have the slightest doubt, princess, he replied, already half fascinated by her great physical beauty and that almost diabolical witchery which made her so delightful to people who did not understand her. But if I may say so, that bring us no nearer to the great secret. Well, she replied, looking straight down at the weed-grown path, I'm afraid I can't tell you that, at least not all at once, without Isar Ramel's permission. But being a woman, I will answer your question by asking you another. Do you believe that there is any truth in the saying that there is that within the heart of every man, and I should certainly think every woman also, which if known, would make his or her dearest friend or lover hate him or her, as the case might be? He interrupted with a quick glance into her eyes, which she had some little difficulty in returning steadily. Yes, I know the saying. La Roche Fouchecous, wasn't it? Well, yes, that is possibly true, as seen by the inner vision of a philosopher with a twist of cynicism in his intellect. But, of course, in practical everyday life, it would be an absolute impossibility, and a very good thing too, because if the philosopher was right and it could clearly be proved, well, there would be an end to society. Every friend would become an enemy, and every enemy would know just what you thought of him or her. The world's pretty bad as it is, but it's a little better than the kind of chaos that would result from working a theory like that out into practice. Altogether, I think it is just as well that the human soul remains forever veiled from the gaze of all human eyes. Seriously, it would be a very terrible thing if that were possible. But it is, she said, stopping and laying her little dauntily gloved hand lightly on his arm. It is possible now, and that is the answer to your question. And the proof, he said in a tone, 
that showed he was both wondering and suspicious. Can it be proved? Yes, she replied. It can. And if you dare, no, I won't say that. If you would like to try the proof with me this evening, here at the Institute, or any other time you like, I will try and get the master's permission. And in the darkness, she continued so solemnly that he looked half startled at her. In the darkness, you shall see that which was never seen in the light. Are you willing, Mr. Siemens? Willing that I should look into your soul and you into mine? Will you dare it if I do? He took two or three more strides beside her along the path in silence. Then he stopped and said slowly, Yes, Karen Natir, I will, if you will. And I will, she said, lifting her eyelids and looking straight into his eyes. Perhaps I risk more than you, but I will do it. And now for the sake of the covenanters, let us go back to the lawn and have some coffee. End of chapter 18